Yeah. Okay. Well, as you may or may not know, I have several, um, more than several, very large musical obsessions. Angie and I get to feed one of my musical obsessions tonight when we get to see a former Beatle perform, which is why I'm wearing a Beatle shirt. Um, we're going to go see Paul McCartney tonight. Thank you, Marnie, for mentioning about dying to see a concert tonight. I know who that was aimed at. Um, the Beatles happen to be the musical obsession that Angie and I share the most. There's not a lot of bands or artists that I like that Angie likes. So a band that I really like is uh, called Rage Against the Machine. And as you can imagine, sweet little Angie. Not a big fan of a band called Rage Against the Machine. Um, but uh, the Beatles, we share that one. And so we're pretty excited. But the Beatles were not always my primary musical obsession, believe it or not. My first true love when it comes to popular musicians was Trish and Dale. Who? You too. And uh, that was true of Zach as well. We were very, very, very obsessed with them. Um, and I've never been obsessed with another band like that since. Uh, I've, I've, anyway, through through you two, my fandom of you two, I came to discover uh, Bob Dylan. I love Bob Dylan. Yeah. Trisha Dale could tell you, Zach and I, that was our next musical obsession, very much so. I love, love, love Bob Dylan. He, he's my second musical love. Um, I've seen Bob live in concert twice, and both times the concert was terrible. He's just not, he's not good in concert. He just kind of like plays off on the side of the stage and doesn't talk to the audience at all, but I was so glad to be there. It was so great. Um, Angie sang a Bob Dylan song to me at our wedding uh, to make you feel my love. Uh, despite the fact that Angie has the voice of an angel, Bob Dylan has the voice of a frog crawling out of the pond muck. Yeah, mashed potato voice. Um, I used to have a blog, and it was terrible. But the first blog post I ever wrote was called Saluting the Tambourine Man, and it was just a list of my 35 favorite Bob Dylan songs. That that was the first thing I felt the entire world needed to hear my opinion on. Um, by the way, the last post I ever wrote for it was about the Beatles, because of course it was. So... Anyway, the number one song on this list of my favorite Bob Dylan songs was from 1965. It's called It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. It's one of, it's not one of his better known songs. Um, even if you don't know anything about Bob Dylan, you probably know Blowing in the Wind or Mr. Tambourine Man or Knocking on Heaven's Door or All Along the Watchtower. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding isn't one of those famous songs. It's basically just a seven and a half minute piece of artsy philosophical rambling, which is all Bob Dylan ever was. But it's my favorite because not only it sounds amazing. I love the sound of the song, but mostly I love that song because the lyrics are so powerful. Here's a few of my favorite sample lyrics. Um, Money doesn't talk, it swears. Yes, Bob, preach it. Consumerism is vile and destructive. Money doesn't talk, it swears at you. It, It demands your attention in gross ways. Yes, that's right, Bob. Or, he not busy being born is busy dying, is another line from that song. Yes, Bob, preach it again. That sounds like something Jesus would say. He not busy being born is busy dying. But then there's this little passage, one which has confounded me more than any other in the song. I return to it over and over again, and it goes like this. A question in your nerves is lit, yet you know there is no answer fit to keep it in your mind and not forget that it is not he or she nor them nor it that you belong to. It is not he nor she nor them or it that you belong to. Yeah, uh, Bob, preach it, I think. I, I'm not sure about that one. I like it, 
but I'm not sure about it. I know it's a very 1965 thing to say, the 60s being a time of great social upheaval and clashing against social norms. But the struggle is that I really do believe that I, I do belong to something. It's not a he or a she or a them or an it that I belong to. Um, whenever I hear this line of the song, I, I think about how it fits with my belief that my heart, soul, mind, and life belong to God, the God who created me. I usually excuse this by willfully misinterpreting Bob's intent and thinking, right, because God is not a he, a she, a them, or a it, he's much bigger than those mere human pronouns. We call him he, Jesus came as a man, but God is not a he. He is beyond gender. He is beyond those pronouns that are very simple. He's above those things. Um, God is simply, I am. He is who he is. I am. And so I, I say to myself, very insightful, Bob. Yes, thank you. Thank you for encouraging my belief in the Almighty. God is more than he, she, them, or it. But of course, that's not what Bob Dylan's talking about. But it's what I believe nonetheless. I belong to God. That is who I belong to. I do not belong to any organization, any political party, any nation, any religion, any person other than God. Now, that's only partly true. Obviously, I belong to my wife. I belong to this church. I mean, there is a sense of belonging that comes with with truly following God. But in the ultimate sense, those are not where my devotion lies. Well, yes, it, yes, it is, Angie. <laughs> but in the ultimate, ultimate sense, my devotion is to Angie through my devotion to God. My devotion is to you through my devotion to God. It's theologically accurate, Angie. I'm sorry, just preaching it like it is. I may be a part of those things, but I am not eternally bound to those things like a servant to a master or a child to a parent or a husband to a wife. I belong to Jesus Christ, who is gloriously more than some faceless or fallible he or she or them or it. It's to him that I give my allegiance, not some flag. It's his words that I follow, not some politician's silver speech. It's him who should receive the first fruits of my time and money and energy, not some job or sports team or 75-year-old folk musician like Bob Dylan. I have many allegiances, but there's only one Lord and Master. As is customary in a Chris Lance sermon, you've now reached the point in the service where everybody's wondering, what in the world does any of this have to do with the book of Acts? Well, allow me to display the title slides so you may begin to see where I'm going. I call it, To Whom Do You Belong? This is a question we'll see the Apostle Paul skillfully tightrope across in our passage. He will lean to one side and then another, but he won't cave, and he won't take his eyes off the target ahead of him. Though the undying allegiances of those around him are misplaced, leading to turmoil and violence, Paul continually demonstrates a third way of allegiance. Though it seems powerless, this third way of allegiance um, is the strongest and most significant allegiance that human beings can align themselves with. To whom does Paul belong? That's the question. But the bigger question, obviously, for us this morning is to whom do you belong? To whom do we belong? Paul will encounter many he's and she's and them's and it's in our passage, but today's verses remind us to keep our eyes on the one who is above all that. So let's read Acts 22, uh, verse 22 to 30 to begin with, and uh, see to whom we belong. Verses 22 to 30. 
The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. By the way, what was the this that he said? What was the word that sent them in a rage? Like three weeks ago that I preached that sermon. Anybody remember? He said one word. They had been listening carefully and patiently until he said Gentiles. Until he said that he is sent to the Gentiles. And then they lose their minds. They raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Which is very sly because he obviously knows the answer. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed because he realized he had put, he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So the word that Paul uttered that sent the entire crowd into frenzied cries for blood because of blasphemy um, was was, um, Gentiles, which is a demonstration of the danger of hardline traditionalism at the expense of seeing what new things God is doing amongst his people. God is often doing new things amongst his people. The word that Paul used was Gentiles and the call to take the salvation to them. Here already, we see one of the dangers of pledging your allegiance to the wrong thing, even if that wrong thing happens to be a good thing. These were traditionalist Jewish people, and it's a good thing to be Jewish. They were God's people, keepers of his holy dwelling place and keepers of the light of his truth. They were God's chosen people, so it was good to be Jewish and to have as conservative and as orthodox a belief system as you could was even better. These people, this crowd shouting for Paul's head, they identified with the nation of Israel, a nation that God himself had set apart from the other nations of the earth to be his chosen people. However, and this is a big however, they had become blinded by their traditional religious nationalistic identities that couldn't see how God was always bigger than just one nation of people or how God had been continually reminding his people since he had first called them to go and be a light to those other icky surrounding nations that they don't like very much. So they got so wrapped up in we're the chosen people, many of them, not all of them, they got so wrapped up in we are the chosen people that they ignored their sacred duty to their neighbors around them. They were so content with being in and refining what it meant to be in that they forgot to look outward as God had been calling them to for millennia already. When we identify with our nation, Canada in this case, Yella, the newest Canadian in the room, we're happy that you're Canadian. But when, when any of us identify with our nation more than our kingdom, it turns neighbors into outsiders. When we identify with our religious background more than our Lord and Savior, it turns neighbors into outsiders. When we identify with traditions and rules more than a dynamic communal relationship with our God, it turns neighbors into outsiders. By the way, this second one, identifying with our religious background more than our Lord and Savior, that is where this movement that our church is a part of came from. 
It was a desire to break down denominational walls and just be true to Scripture. Speak where the Bible speaks. Sola Scriptura, it's called. Uh, scripture alone is our authority. Well, Christ through Scripture. And in that, it was an attempt to 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 do away with all the barriers and boundaries that come with denominations. Now, of course, in so doing, you make yourself a denomination. You're the denomination that is non-denominational while you're still a denomination. But that's part of our heritage, breaking down boundaries between people. That it's, it's not that we're Lutherans or Baptists or Church of Christ as we happen to be. It's not that we're that. It's that we are followers of Jesus. That, that, that is our title. So when we cling to these other things, it doesn't help us to love our neighbor. It helps us to force our neighbor further and further outside the wall. It turns the mere mention of Gentiles, which literally means outside nations. That's all the word Gentile means. It, it turns the mere mention of Gentiles into a filthy word that makes us recoil in horror, as we see in this passage. So the question is, to whom do we belong? So, everyone is freaking out about Paul suggesting God loves the Gentiles, which he obviously does. And the Roman authorities are getting increasingly frustrated because they can't seem to get to the bottom of this situation. They still don't have any idea why these Jewish people want Paul's head. They they want to get to the bottom of it, and they're tired of being in the dark about it. So, as Romans are prone to do, they decide that if they can't get answers from Paul, and if they can't get answers from the crowd, then they're going to torture Paul until he confesses to whatever crime he's obviously guilty of, and then they can punish him duly. Um, so they'll just whip the heck out of him until he tells them what he's done wrong. So they drag Paul, who's in chains at this point, down the stairs of the barracks to the torture chamber, which is just a lovely place to have handy. Um, they strip him naked. They, they fasten his ankles to the floor, probably through chains. Then they have these um, leather wrist things on a pulley, and they pull the pulley, which pulls his whole body taut like this. Um, one servant comes in carrying a notepad. Um, well, it was a piece of papyrus and, and a um, stylus. And he stands by Paul's head, ready to write down any confession, an agonized confession that comes out of his mouth. Meanwhile, another servant comes in bearing the cat of nine tails. We've spoken of the cat of nine tails before. It is just this brutal instrument of torture. It's a whip with nine lashes on it. And at the end of each lash was a piece of bone or metal so that when they whip you, pull it out, it does terrible, tremendous damage. This was a very effective means of torture. Unless, of course, the victim died of severe blood loss or organ failure while you're trying to extract the confession, which is an unfortunate side effect of whipping somebody in this manner. In fact, the pain was so intense and the physical ramifications so extreme, people were often left severely handicapped by this treatment and often would go, would lose their mind because of it. So if Paul was to undergo this form of torture, it is very likely that he would never be able to preach and proclaim God again. It's likely he could die or lose his mind or just lose the ability to freely move about the empire as he currently has the right to do. Thankfully, Paul has a pretty effective trump card up his sleeves. Well, he has, he has no sleeves because he's naked, but you know what I mean. And so very slyly, Paul questions the legality of these proceedings if the one being tortured without a trial is, in fact, a Roman citizen. Is this okay to do, he's saying? And he knows the answer, which, of course, is totally not okay. A Roman could be scourged with the cat of nine tails, 
but only after being found guilty of some extreme crime. To whip and beat or punish a Roman citizen in any way before a trial was illegal. The centurion conducting the affair knows that if they whip a Roman citizen before he's convicted of a crime, then he will face the punishment that the torturee was to face. So he right away is like, whoa, pause, time out. Let's find out some more about this. So he goes to his commanding officer, Lysias. Now keep in mind that although Paul hasn't been scourged in on, on this particular afternoon yet, he had just endured a severe beating at the hands of a hateful mob. So he's not he's not in the best shape at all. Meanwhile, he's got the marks of repeated beatings with rods and other whips and stonings and people's fists all over his body. So when when Lysias comes down the stairs and sees Paul stretched out on the rack and all his already present scars all over his body, he'll excuse him for saying, this sorry figure is a Roman citizen, are we sure about that? Because, I mean, of course somebody would say, oh, don't beat me, I'm a Roman citizen. So when he sees all the wounds on Paul, he's understandably questioning of, of that, of, of Paul's proclamation. So he says to Paul, are you really a Roman citizen? To which Paul replies, yeah, I sure am. This makes the Roman officer scoff a little. See, how, who did you have to bribe to become a citizen, Yella? The Canadian government. He didn't have to bribe anyone. You followed due process. Lysias, however, as was rampant at the time under the Emperor Claudius, he had to submit a large bribe just to get on a list that may make him, that may get him okayed as a Roman citizen. It was a totally, it was a scandalous and it was rampant all over the Roman Empire at the time. Um, the emperor got very rich off of these bribes because everybody wanted to be a Roman citizen. It meant they couldn't just whip you and beat you whenever they wanted to, which is pretty nice. So basically, Lysias is bemoaning the fact that the cost of becoming a Roman citizen must have really lost its value if even this sorry figure could bribe his way into Roman citizenship. That's why he says, are you sure you're a Roman citizen? Just look at you. I I had to pay this huge amount. <laughs> look what they'll, they'll let anybody become a Roman citizen now. Doesn't that sound like the language of some people in politics these days? Which is what makes Paul's next statement so shocking, as he reveals that he is in fact a Roman citizen not by bribe, but by birth. To be a Roman citizen by birth meant that your father was a Roman citizen. And for your father to be a Roman citizen, he must be somebody of importance. And so right away, Lysias is thinking, oh no, I was about to whip, possibly to death, a man whose father is important in Rome. Which means somebody's going to come for his head. Lysias could be in big trouble for even ordering the scourging in the first place, even if he didn't actually go through with it. The servant with the pen, who's going to write down the confession, and the servant with the whip, they drop it and they take off. It even says here, everybody cleared out. Because they don't want any part of the ramifications of, of having been part of torturing a Roman citizen. It's very scandalous. But Lysias, it makes Lysias more determined than ever to get to the bottom of this whole affair. Why do the Jews want your head so badly? You're a Roman citizen. So he exercises his authority and calls an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Council. Paul's citizenship changes everything. Let's read verses 23, 1 to 5, which reads like the script of a truly incredible episode of Law and Order SVU. SVU, by the way, standing for Semitic Victims Unit. Um, so let's read verses 1 to 5. Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. 
Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Pause there. Paul is standing in the very same spot where Stephen had been standing when he addressed the Sanhedrin some 25 years ago before Sanhedrin rushed him and, and stoned him to death. And there were undoubtedly men on this council who had carried out their wrath on Stephen as well. So the stage is set. If you've read Acts, you can anticipate where this may be going. This may be, these may be Paul's last words. Especially because Paul begins his defense with an appeal to a clean conscience before God, which would illustrate the faithfulness of Paul's character to the will and calling of God upon his life. However, since the will and calling of God upon Paul's life happens to involve a favorable opinion of the Gentiles, the high priest has already heard enough. All Paul says is, I've been, I've been living in clean conscience. I've been doing what I'm supposed to do. And already the high priest carries out judgment and gets someone to slap him in the face. Now, a few words about our friendly high priest, Ananias. Even Josephus, who is this extra biblical, he's, he's not a Christian at all. He's a Jewish historian. Um, non-Christian historians to this day really like Josephus because he kind of illustrated the world. Anyway. Everybody likes Josephus. And even Josephus didn't have much good to say about old slappy hands Annie here. Um, Ananias, his 12-year run in the sacred office of high priest of Israel was one of the worst on record. As he regularly helped himself to the tithes that were intended for the wages of the common priests. And he wasn't afraid to use violence, even assassination, to secure his political power. Think of that. A high priest of God is assassinating people to stay in power and to gain more power. How corrupt is that? He became fabulously wealthy by stealing from God's people and God's servants. Moreover, in his wealth, Ananias became awfully chummy with everyone's least favorite authoritarian rule, the Romans. He was buddies with the Romans, which made him an object of severe scorn by a large portion of the Jewish population. In fact, when a rebellion rose up against Rome in 66 AD, Ananias scampered off and hid in an aqueduct somewhere. Basically, he hid in a culvert. And they found him, dragged him out, and executed him on the spot. So, sounds like a charming fella. So that's that's Ananias. That's who Paul's dealing with here. So once again, we see the harm that comes with pledging allegiance to anything other than the God that we are called to serve. Ananias was a poster boy for loving yourself more than others, for loving power more than holy service, for loving the idol mammon, which means, anybody remember? Mammon is money. Thanks, Trish. Wealth. Loving the idol Mammon more than the God of creation. The God who he just so happened to be the high priest for. Moreover, Ananias demonstrates the complicated issues that arise when God's people align themselves too closely with the ruling authorities of the day. This, to me, in several hundred years, when, when whoever's still alive at that point looks back at this point in history in Western society, that's the part they're going to shake their head at the most, was how how co-aligned the Church of the West was with positions and authorities in power. And they're going to shake their head. The church in, in hundreds of years is going to shake their head and say, how could they align themselves so clearly to so much that was going on politically at the time? I really believe that. No matter how secure the ruling authority of the world may seem, they will fall. This empire that we live in today, the American Empire, North American Empire, one day will fall. 
People thought Rome was glorious and would last forever. And it did last a really long time, but guess what? It fell. And every empire that's come, risen up since, it's fallen because that's the nature of human empires. They rise up, they seem indefeatable, they seem eternal, but they're not. They fall. And if God's people are improperly aligned with those worldly powers, then they will fall right alongside them. Ananias, high priest of Israel, really, to whom do you belong? But more than that, Ananias to me is, is, is a portrait of a lot of church leaders today. I ask, to whom do they belong? Do you, do they belong to wealth and privilege and power? Is that who we belong to? Or do we belong to a penniless crucified servant? You can only pick one. Which do you belong to? Now, back to the slap heard round the Sanhedrin. The law carefully safeguarded the rights of defendants, just like our law, law does today. In, under Jewish law, a defendant was innocent till proven guilty, just like in Canada. But Paul, Paul hasn't even been charged with a crime, never mind found guilty of one. They haven't even decided what he's guilty of, and they're already executing judgment on him. As F.F. Bruce writes, the high priest who was there to administer the law had instead broken the law by having Paul struck. It was illegal for him to do this. Understandably, Paul is shocked by this brazen disregard, not only for gentlemanly discourse, but the actual laws of the Jewish people. And so he launches into a fiery tirade against the one who carried out the illegal act. Now, it doesn't sound like Paul is following his own advice. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 12 to 13, when he wrote, When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Well, Paul's being slandered here. Is he answering very kindly? No. He's answering forcefully. However, and I, it's easy for us to cast judgment on Paul not being in his place, but I think there's something else going on here. I think Paul, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, is thinking of facing worldly authority who don't know anything about the nature and character of God. That's not who Paul's facing. Paul is facing the shepherds of Israel. They should know better more than anyone. They should know better. They should respect the law that they have devoted their lives to. And Paul's calling them out for their hypocrisy. You say, you say, say you're so high and mighty. You say you're so righteous with your, your legal understanding. But look at you. You're breaking the law right now. Right now, you're breaking it. They ought to know better. They ought to respect the law of, of, the, of their people. Jesus himself protested when he was struck during his interrogation before the high priest in John 18. So Paul's in pretty good company here. Justice is the nature of God, and calling out injustice, especially from a place of righteousness and victimhood, as Paul is in. He is the victim. And calling out injustice anytime is doing a service and an honor to our just and good God. Right? If Paul doesn't stand up, then they're just going to keep doing it to other Christians after Paul. So he makes his voice known. This is not okay for them to do. Plus, well, from what we've just said about Ananias, Paul's curse is pretty prophetic, isn't it? He was a whitewashed wall. That, that's an image of a shoddy, precarious foundation glossed over with something to make it look pretty, but it's terribly broken underneath, and that's Ananias. And God would strike down Ananias for his crime, as Paul declares. So this is probably God speaking through Ananias. If you're ever in a situation where you're thrown in jail for loving Jesus, maybe don't, don't insult the people around you. Maybe take the high road and speak graciously, but that's not the situation Paul's in. Paul doesn't know 
by the way, who he's calling down curses on and claims of injustice upon. They say, how dare you speak like that to the high priest? He's like, I had no idea it was the high priest. Which I don't know if that's like Paul, like, yeah, I had no idea that's who, I'm sorry about that. Um, he may have known. But remember, he was just severely beaten. Perhaps his eyesight isn't the greatest. Plus, he hardly ever goes to Jerusalem. He probably doesn't know who Ananias is. Either way, once he realizes just who he's been scorning, he repents immediately, demonstrating his credentials as a good, law-fearing Jew by quoting Exodus 22:28, where God forbade the reviling of a ruler of his people like a high priest. So even in this instance, he shows he's better than them. He's more righteous than them. He knows the scriptures just as good as they do, and he follows it, unlike Ananias. In my head, though, I still imagine giving a little snort after his apology. Like, yeah, sorry, I didn't know it was you. But maybe he didn't do that. So things haven't started out super smoothly with the Sanhedrin. Where will Paul go from here? Let's read the end of our passage to finish off. Verses 6 to 10. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why? Luke tells us. The Sadducees say there was no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law were, who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Interesting how close they are to, to the gospel, right? We think of Pharisees as like enemies, but they show they're not that far off. The dispute became so violent, however, that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. Okay, so every commentary I read got all tied up in knots over whether or not this was a sneaky ploy by Paul to get out of all these ridiculous legal proceedings by willfully submitting a controversial opinion that he knew would divide the people in front of them. They thought, some of the commentaries thought, this was dishonest of Paul. Not cool, Paul. You knew this would make them fight. To that, I say, what? I, I think that if Paul did that on purpose, if, if, if he planned for these pompous airbags who sit in judgment of him to start scrapping with each other and totally forget about Paul, if that's what he intended, it is genius. It is brilliant. It's the best, there's no better plan that he could have done than to get them in fighting with each other. It's like when Gideon, remember God whittled Gideon's army down to just 300 people, 300 men, to take on the huge Midianite army, Army, and his plan was they get these, these jars of clay with torches in them, and they go around the camp, and all at once they smash them and blow the trumpets and scream, for Gideon, for God! And these 300 men, because of it, it causes this huge panic in the, the Midianite camp. And the Midianites start fighting with themselves and stabbing each other in their tents because they have it's just chaos. And that's kind of what Paul does here too. It's like, hey, so I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection. And immediately the Pharisee's like, yeah, maybe he's not so bad after all. We like this guy. And the Sadducees are like, no, we're not having any more of this pro-Pharisaic nonsense in our Sanhedrin. And they start battling. And some actually jump down into the pit some of the Sadducees jump down into the pit where Paul is, and they, they want to tear him limb from limb. And other Pharisees, they jump down into the pit to protect Paul, and now they're fighting with each other, and it's just this awesome, awesome scene. Besides, Paul is probably not being entirely dishonest by bringing up the resurrection. 
The Pharisees in the crowd, they were the minority, but they were very powerful, and they were closer to the truth of Christ than their Sadducee brethren were because they believed in supernatural forces and in the resurrection. Those Pharisees, they are Paul's people. He even identifies himself as a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. He's appealing to them to see the hope of resurrection that has already been realized in Jesus. So it's not just a trick to get them fighting with each other. He is witnessing to these people. He loves them. These are his people. He wants to save them. It just so happens that in trying to save them, he saves himself at the same time. It's, I think it's just a hilarious scene. Um, the Sadducees and Pharisees fighting. Meanwhile, Paul scampers out of it. Yeah, the, the, the Romans outside, they hear the ruckus and they're like, well, we gotta go save Paul again. So they go in and deliver Paul from the hands of the Jews again. It's just a fascinating piece of courtroom fireworks. But it's more than just an intriguing bit of legal drama. I love Paul throughout this passage, everything we've read this morning, because he is so shrewd and he is so wise. He uses his connections to escape from unjust persecution and to proclaim the kingdom of God, the kingdom of resurrection, which will eventually lead, as we'll see, to him finally getting to Rome where God had planned for him to get all along. Paul throughout this passage is so sly, so wily. There's a beautiful contrast between Paul and all the other figures around him throughout everything we've read this morning. Everyone around him is beholden to something. As Bob Dylan would say, everyone around him belongs to some he or she or them or it, while Paul belongs to something higher. Let's look at them. He, she, them, or it. Well, Ananias belongs to he, and that he is himself. He is totally trapped in a hypocritical love of self, making himself an enemy of the God that he is supposed to be serving. Ananias is beholden to he. Lysias belongs to them them being Rome, trapped in a system of bribery and brutality, trying to keep a tenuous peace between conquered and conqueror and unable to do so because it's not a real peace. The Sanhedrin, they belong to it, it being the law, trapped in a prison of self-righteousness and religious infighting. They're so busy fighting over theological beliefs, they forget the ultimate command, just to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would recite that passage, the Shema, three times a day at least, and yet they totally forget and ignore it in any real way. So you see politics around Paul, you see nationalism, you see power struggles, but alas, it is not to them, nor nor he, nor she, nor it, that Paul belongs to. I mentioned at the top that Paul continually demonstrates allegiance to a third way. What I mean by that is he self-identifies in this passage as a Roman citizen, and, and God uses this to deliver him from excruciating torture. And then later he self-identifies as a Pharisee. And God uses that to deliver him from unjust persecution. Is there anything more disparate in, in the Bible than a Pharisee and a Roman citizen? A Roman and a Pharisee? Is anything about that similar in any way in any of the readings we've seen in Acts? Those are polar opposites in Paul's world. And yet Paul claims to be both of those things. I am a Roman and I am a Pharisee. The greatest worldly kingdom of Gentiles versus the greatest elite subsection of God's chosen people. Paul says he's both. That, that sound, that's, there's a dissonance there. How could he be both? Those seem like total opposites. And yet Paul tight ropes right between those very distinct aspects of his background, walking that fine line known as the third way. It's not like he was being dishonest. He really was a Roman citizen from birth, and he really was a Pharisee. At least once he was. It's just that 
he doesn't belong chiefly to those things anymore. That, that's not the core of his identity anymore, Roman citizen or, or Pharisee. He belongs to something greater, something more beautiful, something longer lasting, something deeper rooted, something greater. He belongs to something greater. Empires and political parties and even denominations, they rise and fall, but not the kingdom that Paul belongs to. Jesus' kingdom does not rise and fall. Jesus' kingdom is lasting, enduring, beautiful, and eternal. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the third way is the way that focuses on those things that will last, those things done for Christ. He's not, his allegiance isn't to Rome. It really never was. He just happened to have the honor of being a Roman citizen. And his allegiance isn't to the Pharisees or Judaism or the law in any way. Right up the middle is the third way, a different way. Now, for us, there's nothing wrong with being proud of being Canadian. I, every Olympics, I cheer for my, my country. I, I really think Canada is the greatest nation in the world. It's just because I'm Canadian, I don't go beating people over the head with it. I just, we're great. You know, we're great. We keep it low key about it. Like everyone knows how awesome we are. I think it's great to live in Canada. There's nothing wrong with attending this service over, say, an Anglican service or a Lutheran service or a Pentecostal service. There's nothing wrong with belonging to any of those, those, those denominations. There's nothing wrong with voting for one party over another. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with believing the Beatles are the greatest musical entity of all time over Bob Dylan. If you believe that, you're right. So you're on the right side of history. All those things, those are all good. It's fine to, to align yourself with those things to some degree. But they don't define who we are. They shouldn't anyway. Nor should they define who we are to the world around us. It breaks my heart that when the world around us sees the church, they see a certain political ideology more often than not. Well, politics come and go. They rise and fall. To be identified with those ideologies, which are broken, both on the left and on the right, none of them are perfect, I happen to believe that some are less perfect than others. To be aligned either way is a travesty. That's not who we are as the church. We shouldn't belong to any of those lesser earthly things like a country or a political party or even a denomination. Those those just lead to corruption and misdirection, disunity, and inevitably a fall. A fall will come if you align yourself too closely to any of those things. Each of the characters around Paul is missing the mark because they choose to belong to something that falls short of what we are all actually called to. You do not belong to he, she, them, or it. You belong to something more, the kingdom of grace and love and eternal life. You belong to someone more, the king who bought you at the price of his own life. So, continue to be people of a third way. The the thing that blows my mind about American politics is it's, it's bipartisan. You're either this or you're that. There's, there's no in-between. Canada's not a whole lot better. But you either align yourself one way or the other. And Jesus says, no, give to Caesar what Caesar's. Something else is happening here. Something greater. Don't fall into the trap of leaning too far this way or that way so that you plummet off the lifeline that Christ has offered you. Don't primarily identify with anything that turns neighbors into outsiders. Our Jesus did just the opposite. He turned outsiders into neighbors to be loved. That was his third way. Not slave or free. This is what Paul says. There's no longer slave or free. There's a third way. There's no longer male or female. There's a third way. 
There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's a third way. There's no longer rich or poor. There's a third way. There's no longer NDP or UCP. There's a third way. The Green Party. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, I'm totally just kidding. Um, there are no longer outsiders or insiders. There are just kingdom people loving him by loving each other with the grace of our King Jesus. He doesn't see people as out or in. He sees people as closer to him or not yet close to him. So keep your eyes on the one who is above and the things below will grow famously, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we keep our eyes on he who is above, then the things below take their proper place and their proper place is below. They are not as sacred. They are not as important. They are not the things we give our allegiance to. The kingdom of God is. I believe that. Now, that doesn't mean don't have opinions, obviously. Don't have beliefs. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, to whom do you belong? You cannot belong to the the world and to the kingdom at the same time. Okay. Let's pray. God, uh, in you, we see a king who is above all the brokenness of humanity. We see a kingdom that is greater than any earthly thing we can belong to. And we want to be people who belong to you more than anything else. Help us to know when to stand up for what we believe, as Paul does here. Help us to know when to fight for what's right and to when to lay it down for the sake of unity and, and grace. Um, help us to be people of, this, of your third way. Um, not the things of the earth, not the things of ourself, but the things of you. Um, Help us to cling to you, Jesus, to be people identified as your people, not people of some denomination or political party or even country. Help us to be people of you and to serve our neighbors well because of it. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Who did you have to bribe to become a citizen, Yellow? It's theologically accurate, Ange. I'm sorry. Just preaching it like it is. <laughs>